Have any of you ever uh, made plans to modify a habit or to resolve to do something new? Any of you? Okay. Uh, how many of you have ever felt very firm in making this resolve? And then within maybe a couple of months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, that resolve just tanks. Yeah? Anybody? How can we move from feeling such strong resolve to that resolve just disappearing away? I think maybe we can resonate with the Apostle Paul when he says in Romans 7, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, now of course, some of our plans and some of our resolves don't deal with sin, per se, like what Paul is talking about here. But some do. And maybe you, like me, have had times, uh, spiritual experiences even, where you feel like you're on a spiritual high, so to speak, and you resolve, I'm never going to do X, Y, Z sin ever again, and then it happens again. And maybe you, like me, have recalled the words of Jesus when he says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Can you resonate with Jesus' words here? Have you ever felt that way? Maybe some people here today, you're feeling that acutely this morning. And this morning, we're entering back into the narrative of Abram, and Abram can completely relate to this. If you were here last week, you saw how Abram responded to the Lord's promise that God gave to him, and Abram's response was one of faith, obedience, and worship of God. He, 75 years old, packed up his household, and God doesn't even tell him where he's going except to a land that he's going to show him. And he takes everything of his own household with him. That seems like such a powerful faith, right? Such a strong resolve. But that faith, while resident in Abram, is actually revealed in this text we're looking at today to be still immature and weak. Abram, like us, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And as we move into the text this morning, I want us to see this weakness of Abram's flesh. But I also pray that we wouldn't just walk away thinking about his weakness, but we would walk away with a profound sense of awe in the reality of who God is, that God is faithful and God is worthy of our trust. And so the main idea of the sermon this morning is that a believer's faithless fear threatens God's plans, but God's faithfulness always thwarts humanity's schemes. Let me explain that. What we find in this short story is Abram's resolve moves from dependence on God to dependence on self. 
As a result, you know, he risks everything because he depends on himself instead of depending on God. But what's, what's I think, should be beautifully amazing to us is that God's response to Abram, Abram is not, that's it. You too? Are you kidding me? I've already kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. I've sent a flood to this earth. I have sent people away from the city of Babel and scattered them with different languages. I, I would think somebody would get the point by now, and then I got you, and then you too. Et tu, Brute? But God's response isn't like that. God doesn't say, I'm done, it's over. Why? Because God made a promise. God made a promise in the garden to send a seed of the woman, a serpent crusher, who's going to come and save people from sinful actions like what even Abram is going to reveal in this text. Ever since the garden, God made a promise of everlasting grace, and it's a promise. It's a promise that is not dependent on Abram's obedience. It's a promise that cannot be fulfilled by Abram. It has to be fulfilled by God's faithfulness. So while Abram's faithless fear threatens God's plan, what we see in this text is that God's faithfulness thwarts Abram's schemes. So with that, let's jump into the text. A believer's faithless fear threatens God's plans. Now last week, I stated that in God's call to Abram, the fact that God speaks and Abram doesn't speak ought to be noticeable to us. Some of the phraseologies are reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. God says, creation happens. God speaks, Abram trusts and obeys. He doesn't argue and obey. He doesn't say he will obey, but doesn't obey. He just trusts and obeys. And then he worships the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord. That's a, a phrase of faith and adoration. God speaks, Abram's silent. But then, once we get into verse 10, all of a sudden, God is noticeably silent. And Abram speaks. We should see some kind of transition here. And you look at the beginning of verse 10, and if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 12. And at the beginning of verse 10, we read, Now, or in the midst of this, there was a famine in the land. These, these words serve as a transition from Abram's call to Abram's faith, I believe, being tested. Twice, when he's in the land of Canaan, he builds altars to worship the Lord. Oh, this is great. God brought me here. God, you're so worthy. Now his faith is tested. Now, I want to clarify what I mean by testing faith. Sometimes when people think about God testing their faith, they think that means that what God is, since God is testing me, I got to prove to God I, I'm A plus material. Okay, but when you look in the scripture and you understand the idea behind the word testing, it's, it's referring to like testing metals in such a way to remove the impurities. Guess what? God knows that when he tests you, impurities are going to rise up. And God doesn't say, are you kidding me? 
what is this going on? Sometimes that's what our responses are. What? I still sin? God's not shocked by that. God brings the testing in order to remove the impurities. And that's actually something that should encourage us all as children of God. Because if you're going through trials today and difficulties today, even though your flesh and the devil might be trying to destroy you, God's purpose is different and his is superior. He's purifying you. And that's what God is doing with Abram. Now, what we're going to, what I think Abram ought to learn in this scenario is that Abram should not trust his own schemes, but he ought to always trust God. As he had trusted, he should continue to trust. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So as you received him by faith, keep walking by faith. Or, to put it another way, as I think through this story of verses 10 through 20 in this chapter, I'm reminded of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Trust him always. So Abram's faced with this problem, this apparent problem. Actually, he's faced with two problems in this text. The, the first one, though, we're going to focus on first, which is a famine in Canaan. There's a famine in the land. Now, remember, in the previous verses, God speaks, Abram responds, right? Now, God's not speaking. A famine is speaking. His stomach is speaking <laughs> louder than God. A famine's taking place. Now, God had promised to show Abram a land, that he was going to give him into his lineage, that he was going to bless Abram, make from him a great nation, and that through his seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. But there's a famine. And you know, I don't think a nation can come from people who are dead. I mean, if, if, if they have no food, and Abram and Sarah, Sarai die, then no more nation. And so Abram comes up with a plan. Let's sojourn in Egypt. The rest of verse 10 says, So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, I don't believe that this was the wise choice. Abram listens to the famine and responds to the famine. God is silent. It appears that Abram is responding in fear of the famine. So the natural solution is that he's going to try to figure out what to do. He's going to leave the land that God has promised to him. But Abram knows God has promised this land. So it says here in the text, he's going to sojourn in Egypt. So he knows he's not going to be there for a long period of time because of course God has promised Canaan, but I mean, there's a famine in the land. So I got to leave Canaan. I got to go to Egypt in order to get some food so that we can go back. Is this making sense? I mean, in transparency, I, I get the thinking of Abram here. However, God made a promise. God did not tell Abram to go. God did not call Abram to sojourn in Egypt. God called him to sojourn until he reached the land God had promised him. He's in the land. And so the question I have is, is Abram going to trust God or is he going to trust his own logic? 
He's already trusted the God who brings order from chaos. He believed that God can bring a child to his wife, who is at that time 65 years old. He believes God can make a nation from him, even though he's 75 years old. So why not trust God to deal with some food issues in the land? But Abram decides, we got to go. And as his envoy is approaching Egypt, Abram thinks of another problem. Oh, no. Pharaoh might want Sarai in his harem. Oh, now we got to solve this one. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So he's worried about a famine that was in the land of Canaan. And because I think the implication is they would die if there's a famine and they won't stay alive in Canaan because of the famine. So let's go to Egypt. And now as Abram's getting close to Egypt, he goes, oh, shoot. I could die in Egypt. So the promise still can't be fulfilled if I die. (sighs) We got, okay, got to think through this a little bit more so that God's promise can be fulfilled here. Um, Got it. Say that you're my sister. Abram could have died in Canaan. Abram is saying he can die in Egypt. Which is better? I mean, what we're already seeing is that, Abram, you should have just trusted the Lord in the first place. Now you're starting to manage and even micromanage more things. You see how it seems Abram is driven by fear here? Fear of what could happen? Fear of losing the promise? That's why, by the way, we read from Psalm 37 earlier in the service. Three times in eight verses, we're told not to worry ourselves by people in the world. In verse 8, we read, fret not yourself. Can you read the rest of this with me? It tends only to evil. Let's just read the whole verse together again, just to make sure we understand the simplicity of this statement. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. We're watching this happen in Abram's life. Living on the basis of fear of the world only leads to more fear, only leads to more bondage, and doesn't lead to God-glorifying decisions and choices. And now Abram is just trying to minimize the consequences. Can any of you relate to this? Can any of you think about your life, maybe even right now, And you're trying to control and minimize consequences and you're not really trusting the Lord. You say you're doing things that would glorify God, but you're doing them on the basis of fear, not because God is good and gracious and you're resting in Jesus Christ. See, Psalm 37 gives us a greater alternative than to live in fear. Psalm 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. 
and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Trust and obey. That, that, that's, what, that's what Abram started with. Trust him, I'll do it. And, 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 and then the text says, dwell in the land. Live where God has placed you. And befriend faithfulness, meaning, and live faithfully to the glory of God. Not living in fear of what could happen in the land, but just living in faithfulness to the Lord by his grace. All the while, delight yourself in the Lord. Isn't that what Abram did too by building the two altars and worshiping God? He was delighting in God. He was trusting God. And then it says, and he will give you the desires of your heart, which I just want to qualify that statement because some people misinterpret it to mean, if I delight in God, God's going to give me a Ferrari, you know, or whatever kind of selfish desire I want. He's going to give me the desires. No, it's he will give the desires, meaning he's going to give the desires that align with him for our eternal good and our eternal joy. This is how we're called to live as children of God. Don't live in fear of the evildoers. Don't live in fear. Are there evildoers in this world? Don't live in fear of them. Don't react in fear of them. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land. Befriend faithfulness. Delight in the Lord. And he will shape and give desires. Trust in him not your man-made schemes. But Abram trusts his schemes. And his solution is to deceive Pharaoh about their relationship. Verse 13, we read Abram's plan. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Deception is so deceptive. I mean, Abram is, is not saying to his wife to lie. What we find out later on in Genesis is that Sarai actually is his half-sister. They share the same father, but not the same mother. And so he's saying, just say, just say you're my sister. So it's not an outright lie. And by the way, if you're ever in a situation where you're about to respond to someone and Inside your head, you're thinking, well, it's not a lie. It's probably your conscience saying, you're going to deceive. Don't do it. And that's how Satan acted in the garden with Adam and Eve. Multiple times, he didn't outright lie, he deceived. His word choices were just hazy. And we're told in the Bible that the serpent, the devil, is a deceiver from the beginning. And Abram is actually following the serpent in his ways, not the serpent crusher. Now, all that said, there is evidence in the ancient world that would give a legitimate basis for Abram's fear. Okay, so I'm not saying that he has no reason to feel fear. Just like if you were in a famine you would wonder, okay, where's my food coming from? There's an understanding of this. Well, similarly about his relationship to Sarai. In the ancient world, kings and rulers could just take more women. And so, and, and, oh, you're, you're his husband? 
well, here, I can solve this. I'll just kill you. No more husband except for me. And so Abram has this fear, and so what he says is, say that you're my sister. Now, why does he do that? I used to think that it was simply because he's like, I got to stay alive. And he's only thinking about himself. But I don't think that's totally the case. I mean, he is thinking selfishly, but there's more to it. I do believe that Abram is thinking about the promises of God and how is he going to make sure these promises remain. And if you look at ancient culture, what would happen is that if there was a sister, if there was a family member with that woman, then many times, then there was negotiations. So what Abram is saying is, if they see you, find you as beautiful as you are, and then want to take you to Pharaoh, what's the only way I can save this? I need more time. Say you're my sister, and then I've got a little more time to figure out what to do. Do you understand that? Because there would be negotiations over the dowry. The thing that Abram's not anticipating is that Pharaoh is so wealthy, he doesn't feel the need to negotiate. Oh, you're, you're his sister? Let me give you all this stuff. I mean, there's no way you're even going to project how much stuff I can give to you. So there's no negotiations that take place. Abram wasn't expecting that. He's trusting his own schemes, not trusting in the Lord. And you see, you see how what he's doing is starting to threaten, so to speak, God's plan. Look at verses 14 through 16. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt, uh, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. Now, Abram was right. The Egyptians saw, by the way, the Egyptians saw a mid-60-year-old woman to be so staggeringly beautiful that she should be a part of the harem of Pharaoh. And when the household of Pharaoh saw her, they told Pharaoh, and then they just take her. That wasn't a part of Abram's plan. That wasn't supposed to happen. He needed more time. And it's at this moment where I can imagine Abram's heart sank. And he finally realized, oh no, what have I been doing? Have you ever had situations like that? You know, where you're just, no, I'm just, I'm just doing this. I'm just doing it. No, no, no. I care about God's plan. I'm just doing this. I'm just doing this. And then there's no other recourse. You're stuck between a rock and a hard place. What have I been doing? God, I'm so sorry. Can you help me out of this? Anybody relate to that? What have I done? I can imagine Abram feels like he's ruined everything because I don't think he wanted to be separated from Sarai. He, wanted to, he was thinking he had to keep them together so that the promise can be fulfilled. But now there's no Sarai. And yet there's some irony in verse 16. 
In verse 16, we're told that for Sarai's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. Hmm. Why is that ironic? Because in the earlier verses, Abram says, say that you're my sister so that I can be dealt well with. But I don't think that Abram was thinking the same thing. Like, he wasn't saying, say that you're my sister so I can get a bunch of donkeys. I, I think he has a higher goal in that. He was dealt well with by the Pharaoh, but all he got was Pharaoh's stuff. And what did it matter if he has donkeys, servants, camels, but no Sarai? This reminds me of Jesus' words when he says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, like, literally, think about this. The Pharaoh of Egypt is probably the wealthiest man on the planet in that day. He takes Sarai, gives Abram even more wealth. But what does all that wealth mean if there's no Sarai? What does it mean if they can no longer be married? I believe, and I preached it this way last week, that Abram knew that God's promises were looking forward to a serpent crusher, a seed that was going to come. And right here, literally, what does it matter now if Abram has all this stuff without Sarai? What does it matter if he gains the whole world and literally loses his own soul because the serpent crusher is not going to come now? And it's not just his own soul that he's losing. Remember, the promise of God was, and through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. He's destroyed everything for the whole world. Way to go, Abram. Now, as I think about this, I wonder how the Israelites in the wilderness would process this narrative. I mean, the Israelites at various times failed to trust the Lord and they trusted in their own schemes. I think of when God called uh, the Israelites to go to battle to certain people in, in Canaan. And you, you may remember this story, the 12 spies that go in to look into the land. And if you've grown up in church, you may have even sang the song, and 10 were bad and two were good. And what we meant by that was, you know, 10 of the spies went in and they're like, no way. No, there's like giants in the land. It's crazy in there. We, we would never beat them. It is terrifying. And then there's the two that come back and they say, listen, if God told us to do it, then let's do it. And God's going to give us the victory because this is what God said. So God will provide. And yet the Israelites say, nope, nope, no, we're not going to do it. We're going to listen to the 10 people and we're not going to go into the land. Then what does God say? I'm going to punish you. I'm going to punish you for not obeying me so that you learn this. And then and the Israelites, just like children, just like us, you know, oh, no, 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 we'll obey. We'll do it. We'll go to battle. We'll go. Let's go. Let's go, guys. And God says, I'm not going to go with you. That's okay. That's okay. We'll show you. We'll do it. And they go in. And what happens? Do they win? Nope. They lose the battle. Because the whole point, the whole point is about relationship with the Lord and trusting him. Is what David mentioned at the beginning of the service. If, if we don't have God with us, then we have nothing. If we have God with us, then we have everything. And so the Israelites looking at this ought to be seeing, oh, yes, 
Our forefather Abram, he ought to trust. And we ought to trust our God and not our own schemes. And I know some people, even here, I can say, what are you trusting in? Are you living for your own schemes? And you could say, well, okay, but here, here's the thing. If I trust God, it's going to be really painful. Have you ever thought that before? Anybody? anybody? I know I have. Before. Well, but I, I mean, oh, I, so maybe we can do this like middle ground where I can reduce the pain and still obey. Right? What a waste. What a waste. You say, yeah, but, yeah, but I know that the people who follow God, there's trials in their lives. Well, I mean, Jesus does say in this life you will have tribulation, right? But, but what does God give to those who trust him? God gives himself and purified beauty, which I'm talking about in us. He purifies us and causes us to become increasingly beautiful. Can we trust him? Or should we trust him in this? Yes. Abram should have trusted. He didn't. And he could say, I messed it all up. Because he did. But God's faithfulness always thwarts humanity's schemes. Let's read verses 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her from my wife, for, for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Just look at the first three words of verse 17. But the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? God shows up. In the midst of sin, God shows up. Reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our sins. We're by nature children of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy. But the Lord. We should love this. Even though Abram had very weak Faith and is responding with so much faithlessness. And he's ended up in a horrific predicament that he can't get out of. Guess who can get him out of it? The Lord. God shows up. God afflicts Pharaoh's house. God afflicts Pharaoh's house in such a way that it causes Pharaoh to know that the reason why this affliction is happening is because this lady is actually Abram's wife. So we, we're not told how he comes to all of that awareness or how the afflictions teach him this. We're just told that it does. And so Pharaoh calls for Abram, and Pharaoh confronts Abram, and Pharaoh actually uses similar words that God uses in the garden towards Adam and Eve. That's interesting. What does he say? What is this you have done? Wait a second. 
through Abram's offspring, all the nations are to be blessed. And Abram is actually acting as an anti-offspring right here. He's not blessing Egypt, being in Egypt. And now God, this is, I think it's very ironic. God is speaking through Pharaoh to Abram. What have you done? Here is the correction. God is rebuking Abram. Why did you deceive? This deception would not, does not glorify God. It will not bless the world. But notice verse 19. It is interesting. Pharaoh states that Abram is the one who deceived. We actually don't have a record that Sarai does. Now, she may have. She may have. But we actually don't have record that Sarai was the one that said it. We actually have record that Abram was the one that said, she's my sister. And so Abram is acting a lot like Adam in the garden. Instead of loving his wife and caring for her, he buys into the deception and doesn't care for his wife. Yet God is merciful and promises the seed to come to crush the serpent. God is merciful and continues the promise. He's going to rescue Sarai and bring her back to Abram. So Pharaoh says to Abram, take her, (laughs) take her back. And then just to make sure he doesn't see Abram ever again, he gives men orders, get that guy out of here. I don't want to see his face again, essentially. Take all the people, and by the way, all the stuff. Pharaoh had given him a bunch of stuff. We're never told that Abram then like divvies it all back and gives it back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not even interested. Just get out of here. So Abram has gained wealth. Abram's gained servants. And where does Abram head back to? You guys know? We have Negev, but he heads back to Canaan. What a crazy U-turn. He should have never left, right? Because God just, get back there, Abram. Yet in the midst of this trial of famine and this test in Egypt, God takes this evil and turns it for good. He teaches Abram about himself. He's worthy of even greater trust than what Abram already exhibited. Abram, you can't stop God's plan. Christians, you can't. God's plan isn't dependent on you. You know that? And you can't stop it. You can't stop his plan of redemption. You can't mess up so much that God can no longer save the world. You might think that your life is too messed up. But if you trust Jesus, he promises that he controls all things and he will work all things together for your eternal good. Do you know that? Now, some people might, might maybe say, oh, wow, so if I can't mess up God's plan, let's just like mess everything up and just sin all we want. If anybody has that kind of thought process, um, that's actually horrifying. Because if you met someone who loves you and lavishes grace and kindness over you, and your response is, sweet, I can treat you like trash. What does that say about you? 
you don't really get love. You've not been melted by the love and grace of that person. If you, if you know someone's love, then the response ought to be love if your heart has changed. And that is the case with God. If you know God and you increasingly know him, his grace and mercy continue to melt your heart so that you want him and that you would respond in obedience and praise of him. Now, by the way, this may be a little bit of a side note, but I think it's helpful to know. Um, Abram does experience certain painful consequences from this. Forgiveness does not equal no consequences. Um, In this scenario, he gains Egyptian servants. And there's going to be a female Egyptian servant that is going to be showing up in a little while and then her child and her posterity is going to cause amazing problems for the Israelites. We know who that is? Hagar. We also know what's soon to come is because of all the great wealth that has been accumulated, much of it that's come from Egypt, Abram and Lot are going to separate, and there's going to be some problems that show up because of that. Sin is never worth it. Probably many of you have heard the phrase, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. Abram, Abram was not expecting. He, he thought that he could manipulate the situation and he had the scheme and he had the plan in order to make sure that God's plan was fulfilled. Nope. Not trusting the Lord will never draw you closer to the Lord and lead to his glory in this world. Sin is never worth it. Now, I can only imagine how some Israelites would have interpreted this narrative when first given to them. You may have already seen this, but there are multiple similarities between this narrative and the Israelites fleeing out of the land of Egypt. I'm going to give you some words, ideas that are used in this text that's also used in uh, the Egyptian exodus, just so that you can see. In just these 10 verses... A severe famine, a sojourn in Egypt, potential killing of a male, bondage, great wealth, plagues on Egypt, the summons to take and go, the word send, and the journey to the Negev. These are all similarities. Uh, One commentator says of this, knowing this history would have, or I could actually say should have, been a comfort and encouragement to the people under Moses. For if God, who made the promise to Abram, delivered Abram from Egypt to return to the land, then God, who confirmed the promises to the descendants of Abram, could surely deliver them as well. Surely deliver them as well. And even though Israel, I mean, I think of, I think of the Israelites in the wilderness and then they're, they're making this covenant with the Lord and God says, do all of these things. And this is one of the saddest kind of scenarios that I I recall and I kind of laugh as well. But when God says, will you do all these things? You remember what the Israelites say? We will do it. And I'm like, oh no. They said they would. They're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. And they don't. They don't. Even though Israel excitedly agreed, 
and worshiped the Lord there. They disobey and disobey and disobey. And yet God is still faithful to his promise to bring the serpent crusher. They can't thwart God. So will they trust him? Will they trust God? And what about us? What's the implications of this text to us? I think, will we live in fear or will we live by faith? Think of the people on the earth when Jesus came to this earth. Matthew actually starts his writing of the narrative of Jesus and talks about how the city of Jerusalem was in fear because of Jesus. Who is this guy? Oh, no. Oh, no, we know who this is. And so they started coming up with their own schemes to try to manipulate situations. There were some, though, who believed on Jesus. They believed God's promised seed had come, and over and over again, Jesus proved his deity and his humanity. He proved he was the Messiah, and yet still people wanted to trust their own schemes, saying, we want the kingdom of God, but they wanted it their way. And eventually got to the point of killing Jesus. And yet even in the murder of Jesus, that was God's plan all along. Like humans can't thwart God's plan, even if you try to kill God. But that was God's plan, that the Messiah would take the sins of people like Adam. He would take the punishment of sins for people like Eve and Noah and Sarai and Abram and even people like Pharaoh on himself. So that in him taking the punishment, he would, he would gift to anyone who would trust him, he would gift them with his righteousness. And through Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The prophet Isaiah says that someday, this is what God is going to say, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. Abram failed to bless Egypt. <laughs> but Jesus, through him, no matter where you live, no matter what your past, no matter what you've tried to do in your schemes, there is forgiveness found in Christ because he fully took the punishment our sins deserved. Through the offspring of Abram, all the nations will be blessed. So again, the question to you, do you trust him? And, and, if, you're, if you do, do you know that now, through all who trust in Jesus, we're called to bless the nations around us? Did you know that? We're, we're called to dwell in the land. I just so happen to live in Holland. Some of you live in some other town or state. But dwell in the land and what? Befriend faithfulness and delight yourself in the Lord. And yet, and yet, so many of us as Christians live in fear of the society we live in. Now, are there a lot of things that we're concerned about in this society? Whoa, I just want to hear it. Are there a lot of things we're concerned about in this society? Yes. Absolutely. And so we could say, well, but God, I mean, that is a nerve-wracking thing. But God says, don't fear the evildoer. Fret not. What's the rest of the verse say? It what? tends only to evil. But I feel like fearing. Don't do it. Maybe my fear won't tend to evil, 
You know, like there have actually been studies done recently on, on media today, whether it's social media or formal media, and you know what is the great motivator for, to get human beings to act and respond? You know what it is? Fear and anger. If we can get you angry and afraid, and actually Psalm 37 also says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Oh, wait a second, I'm not supposed to respond that way. Why? Because ultimately we have Jesus Christ. And what matters ultimately is eternity. This earth, no matter how long it lasts, no matter how long it lasts, pales in comparison to eternity. The existence of all humanity throughout all time would be like me putting a dot on the wall and eternity would be like me painting the rest of it and beyond. Jesus even says when he's teaching, don't fear people who can destroy your body. And I want to say, why not? Because, like, I kind of like this. Right? I like my body. I... I like my head. I'd like it to stay attached, you know? But Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who can take away the body. What does he then go on to say? Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. There's an eternity. And we who know Jesus are set free to keep the main message, the main message, to proclaim Jesus and not get distracted by these other types of fears that we have. What, what are you gripped by? What fears are you gripped by? Is it, I don't have enough money in my savings account. I gotta have more money. I gotta have more money. Is it, is it political fears? This society is wasting away. Yep, it is. It is. Are you, are you motivated by fear or by faith in Jesus Christ? What, what, what fears are controlling you? You have Jesus don't trust in your schemes. And you can say, yeah, but I mean, I'm doing this because I, I love Jesus. Really? Or you know when fear is motivating. I think, I think we do. Don't try to justify it. When we get into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans to the Christians. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I, I love to stop. And I would prefer to put a period at that, but we can't, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. <clears throat> Trials purify. Trials sanctify. We, when we look even at the world around us, I, I expect that things are going to get worse. Maybe I'm wrong. 
but I, I think it's going to. But I have the God who says that if and when things get worse, it's for your eternal good, child. What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of? I don't have the spirit of slavery. I'm not living in Egypt. I have the spirit of adoption. And Christian, so do you. We have the message of life and hope and restoration and forgiveness. And all the while, even as we're still weak in our faith, he'll make us strong. Will we trust him? We know we should. Will we? Even if the culture is against us and hates us, we have God. And to have God, even if we lose our lives, is to have everything. Because after all, what does it matter if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? Who are you living for? How are you living your life? Praise God, his faithfulness thwarts our schemes and sets us free from fear. Will you continue to trust God who's over the chaos? Let's pray. Abba, we need you. And I even thank you, Father, for those words in Romans 8. We cry out, Abba, because we live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that we don't know what to do. We often don't know how to respond. We have fears that are coming at us. And the only response that we ought to have is, oh, Father, pick me up. Oh, Father, take me. Oh, Father, guide me. God, cause me to trust you. Because in our own strength, we're going to trust ourselves, Lord. And Father, I pray you would work in all of our hearts this morning, right now, that in the areas of our lives that we're trusting our own schemes, Lord, would you so lovingly confront us and show us that you are more glorious, your ways are more beautiful, your kingdom is greater than ours. Father, please show us how much greater rest there is in trusting in the Lord dwelling where you've placed us, befriending faithfulness. Father, please cause us to delight more greatly in you than in anything that we can create so that our desires might align with yours. And Father, may no one here lose their soul. To you be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.